welcome to Base Camp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome, and let's get started. Hello, Base Campers. Hope you're all doing well. Today is a bit of a longer interview, so I want to get right to it. What sorts of possibilities does Bitcoin and sound money present to humanity? I think that many people have probably lumped in Bitcoin with the rest of the crypto space, not understanding the differences and thinking that perhaps Bitcoin was a flash in the pan so they didn't need to take time to learn about it. Bitcoin represents something that we have not seen, a sound form of money that is incorruptible, transparent, and whose value is derived from its fixed supply, 21 million, as in there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Juxtapose that next to the systemic corruption of the fiat system, where central bankers constantly debase our money by printing more and more of it. The more they print, the less your dollar is worth, which naturally leads to inflation and ultimately hyperinflation. And Bitcoin is getting closer to its big moment as presidential hopeful Robert Kennedy Jr. comes out in favor of it and even buys two Bitcoin for each of his seven children. How cool is that? I don't know if Kennedy will win the Democratic nomination. There are powerful, corrupt forces that do not want him to win, but I love where he is going with this. Today, my guest and I talk far and wide about Bitcoin and also introduce the concept of proof of work and what that means for you and I. Enjoy the interview. My guest today is John Haar. John is a passionate Bitcoiner, a student of Austrian economics, and an advocate for sound money. John is a managing director on Swan Bitcoin's private client service team, Swan's concierge service for high net worth individuals. Before Swan, John spent nearly 13 years at Goldman Sachs in the asset management division in New York City. Here is my interview with John Haar. All right, I am here with John Har, Bitcoiner from Swan Bitcoin. John Har, John, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It is great to have you on the show. Hey, Tony, it is great to be here. I'm pumped for this conversation. Thank you for having me, man. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. You and I had a conversation about Bitcoin, of course, uh, a couple weeks ago when you were game for coming on. And you know, when I started season five, I made a quadrant. And uh, Bitcoin sat firmly in one of the quadrants of what I was going to be doing episodes about because I really feel that more people need to know about it. Um, there's still a lot of people that that have misconceptions or they're just not digging in to find out about it. So I really wanted the show this year to have a smattering of good Bitcoin episodes. Uh, and so my first question, I guess, for you is like, how long ago did you get? into Bitcoin? Like what was the, who was the person or what was the thing that introduced you and what were your initial thoughts and, you know, how long ago was that? And then what happened to have you, I mean, you work at one of the, one of the really important Bitcoin companies, Swan. So clearly you went all in, but how long was that journey? And like, yeah, who, who was the friend or person that first uh, connected you? Yeah, I would love to get into all that. One of the best stories that I, that I love telling I'll give you the uh, medium length version and, you know, chime in with any questions as I'm going along here. Sure. So for me, it actually goes back to 2008, 2009. And if a uh, Bitcoiner is listening, they're going to say, whoa, has he been in Bitcoin since, since then? You know, is he Satoshi? Um, no, I am not. Um, but it, it is um, important to go back to that time for me because I graduated college in 2008, 2009. 
And that was really the beginning of my Bitcoin journey, even though I didn't hear about Bitcoin until 2013. And why 2008, 2009 is relevant for me is because that was the what's now known as the global financial crisis. And I was a finance major at the time. I was a senior in college, like I said, really a crazy time to be graduating with any degree, but particularly crazy to be graduating with a finance degree. I mean, literally applying to jobs. And then a month or two later, that firm was going out of business or getting acquired by another firm. So just a really crazy time to be a senior. And I'll never forget uh, looking around at my teachers, uh, the financial media, Bloomberg, CNBC, politicians, you know, Treasury Secretary or Fed Chair Ben Bernanke at the time. And they, quite frankly, uh, did not really know what was going on. And I don't say that in a way like I did know what was going on. Uh, I was a 21-year-old college student, so I, I clearly didn't know what was going on. But you thought but they I, would have you thought they would have some answers, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I thought, you know, th these are the people who are tasked with managing the system. I thought they were supposed to know what's going on. And that was kind of the first light bulb moment for me. It was just like, okay, I'm watching Ben Bernanke say something on TV, the crisis is contained to subprime. Uh, the GSEs, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you know, they're going to make it through. We don't see house prices falling on a nationwide level. And some of these things got proven wrong just like a week or two later after he said them. So I'm looking at that and just saying, huh, I've got to go elsewhere for answers here because these people are not really providing them in, in my view. And that's when I stumbled across uh, the Mises Institute at Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S -S, after Ludwig von Mises, one of the great Austrian economists out there. And this is basically a, a website, an institute dedicated to the study of Austrian economics. The Austrians are very big on things like sound money, uh, the gold standard, and that kind of opened up my eyes to that whole world because up till that point, uh, and I was a finance major, so I took many finance and economics classes, but none of that stuff was mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I remember being amazed at that. I was like, why am I hearing of the gold standard and this whole concept of sound money or even the term Austrian economics? Why am I hearing of this the first time? Mm -hmm. And that was just, that was another light bulb moment for me. I said, oh, there's a whole nother branch of economics that I didn't learn about. So this is like 09, 10 timeframe. And I quickly became a proponent of sound money, of the gold standard. Uh, I was reading blog posts on Mises.org that would talk about fiat currency. And I always found this part hilarious because in 2010, if you said to someone, the term, just you know, a random person, one of my coworkers at the time, you said the term fiat currency, they would say, what the hell are you talking about? Right. Uh, that was just, that was not a household term whatsoever. Yeah. And it's really only in the last like five-ish years that that has become more of a household term that people actually know what you're talking about. Uh, and I attribute a lot of that to Bitcoin. But fast forwarding this story a little bit, I become a proponent of sound money, of, of the gold standard, uh, you know, 09, 10 type time frame. But it meant gold because Bitcoin wasn't on my radar. It was a relatively new thing. Um, so you fast forward to 2013. I hear of Bitcoin through a friend. 
And I'm immediately attracted to it because I say, oh, they're trying to do digital sound money. And that part might sound like I'm patting myself on the back. Um, you know, I'll give myself a little bit of credit for realizing that, but it's all really the Austrian economics background that I had. Unfortunately, my next thought was this is never going to catch on. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So I, like many people, totally dismissed it um, for, for years. And my thinking was uh, a few things. One, I said, okay, they're telling me there's 21 million. I don't really know how there's 21 million. I didn't do a deep dive on how the network and the protocol function. Um, buying it was very sketchy at the time. There were these, you know, Bitcoin ATMs in the city I live in, but I wasn't about to go walk up to one and just put a couple hundred dollar bills in it. That seemed very weird. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, I was having conversations with people uh, at my job. And uh, quick background, I worked at Goldman Sachs for 13 years before I joined Swan Bitcoin in early 2022. So I'm having conversations with people from 09 to you know 13 and on about sound money, the gold standard. But if you mentioned the gold standard to them, they looked at you like you had seven heads. Mm -hmm. it, it was just not something that they were willing to entertain. They thought, you know, this fiat central banking system we have is a more enlightened system and it's more flexible and we can manage it. That was just the prevailing view. So I figured even if Bitcoin is what they say it is, you're not going to get people to catch on because they don't even like gold and yeah. gold has thousands of years of history. So they're just not going to catch on to Bitcoin. So you, you were you were looking at like the finance bros and they're like, no, and you're just like, it's never going to fly like these guys. If these guys aren't catching on or seeing it, how how is this even going to start, basically? <laughs> Exactly. I was just, you know, how if they don't see gold that has thousands of years of history of being a monetary asset and, you know, up until even just a few decades ago, it was an mm -hmm. important piece of our monetary system. If they think gold is nonsense, then yeah. how are they ever going to buy the magic internet money version of gold? Right. So I just said this thing, you know, cute idea, but it's not going to catch on. So I, I'm one of the many people who dismissed Bitcoin for a long time after hearing about it. But you fast forward a little bit more, 2017 comes around. And that, to me, in my opinion, was the first mainstream bull market in Bitcoin. And you had you know, financial media outlets talking about it. It was actually featured on CNBC, Bloomberg, et cetera. My colleagues are talking about it at Goldman you know, on the floor. And I said to myself, okay, maybe this is a real thing in the public's eye. Um, and that's when I, you know, got a little bit more involved. I said, okay, maybe this thing's not going away. That was kind of the time I really bought in and said, okay, I think this actually has legs. Uh, and I think it actually has properties that improve upon what gold offered to us from a monetary perspective. Mm -hmm. So that I consider myself, you know, Bitcoin class of 2017. Um, but at the time, there was no obvious place to go work. There was no real concept of like a Bitcoin only company. Uh, I'm not a software developer, builder type person, so I wasn't going to do that. But if you fast forward a little bit more, 2020, 2021, companies like Swan were popping up. This idea of a Bitcoin only financial services company uh, was becoming a thing. I got linked up with some of the people who were at Swan, was just uh, continuing to get impressed by what they were building. 
And then you fast forward, I ended up joining Swan about a year and a half ago. And I'm very happy with that decision. So I know that was a bit of a long-winded story, no, it's but all that's, good. The, uh, that's kind of, yeah, how, how I got there. Plenty more to dig in though. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think, you know, one of the things like I, I, I'm keep some of my assets with one of the big brokerage firms. And I can, when I stop in and chat with some of those guys, I, they so want to understand, you can see that they know that Bitcoin is rising in its prominence and its importance. And they're, they're sort of hand tied to talk about it at all. But like I was in there uh, talking about Bitcoin with somebody and a couple of the other kind of uh, advisors came around and they're, oh, do you, do you want to invest in, in an ETF Bitcoin? And I said, no, no, I, I'm not doing that. I go, I self-custody in a hardware wallet. Like I'm not going to buy an ETF, you know, and, and you could see that they were like, you know, where did you learn that? You know, it's like, it's all like, you can learn it. There's a bunch of places like, and I don't know, you know, I, I wasn't telling them to go get it because I, I don't know what their obligations are in terms of their firm and what they're allowed to do. But um, yeah, I think they were, I may have been the only person that stood in the lobby of, of this, this firm and said, no, I self custody. I'm not interested in any kind of emerging ETF. I, why would I do that? You know? Um, but I, one of the things I wanted to ask you, John is, you know, I've been fortunate enough the past few years to be uh, in different kind of Bitcoin communities, forums. I've I've talked to a lot of Bitcoiners. Um, and what what would you say? How is Bitcoin impacting humans, or what's the potential to impact humans? How is it? And I'm specifically interested in like how it impacts consciousness. Meaning, like, what is it? What is the impact that? that it's having on the Bitcoin community that you could see perhaps it having a larger impact on humanity once it gets adopted or once it spreads and continues to grow. Because one of the things that I've noticed, and then I'll hand it to you is just, I think Bitcoiners, they're, they're really smart and they're really optimistic. Like we live in this, like, I mean, depending on your viewpoint, you know, there is all kinds of shit going down in the world. And it seems like there's a huge paradigm shift in terms of the globalists, it's almost like if you if you read any of uh, General Flynn stuff, it's globalists versus we the people. Now that might seem you know harsh to people, but you can certainly see evidence of it. And Bitcoin is a tool for humanity. Here comes this thing that is you know takes a while to learn, but the, all the Bitcoiners I know they're so optimistic, they're so upbeat, they see so much potential, and I think people in in the larger world are starved for like a positive message right i think sometimes they're looking out at the cities they live in they go oh my god this isn't going well but i see so many great things in the bitcoin community and the people that i talk to and i think that that actually could be a really attractor and something that really impacts humanity because we're looking for tools that um uplift right now and inspire and create a sense of possibility in the larger sense. And I, I think that's one of the things that Bitcoin carries and maybe people don't know about it because all they hear about is, you know, 21 million and, and uh, you know, it's digital, it's digital currency that has true scarcity, but they don't, they don't hear about all the other things. And you work inside of a Bitcoin company. So I'm kind of curious to get your take on it because you're, you're in a culture that is all about Bitcoin and, and just like, how is that? And what do you notice with your culture and what, you know, all the conversations you're having as it relates maybe to the larger, the larger uh, culture? 
Yeah, so many great things you threw out there. Um, one thing I'll start with is uh, this is how I've phrased it in the past, and I think this speaks to the optimism that Bitcoiners have. I've said Bitcoiners are the people who want to improve our systems of education, food, healthcare, government, science, architecture, art, etc., all while maintaining and respecting the freedoms of families and individuals. And th- you know that's that. yeah. yeah, that's you know I think that is a pretty you know something we could probably unpack for a while, but just a, cu- a couple comments on on that. I think the last part of that is the most critical, the all while maintaining and respecting the freedoms of families and individuals, because you could take any tyrant throughout history and, you know, what are they going to tell you? Like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm here to improve things for you and for our country. Uh, You know, Stalin certainly would have said that, Mm -hmm. but once you add in that second part and I want to do it while maintaining and respecting the freedoms of families and individuals, I think that becomes a very different statement. And I think that's the world that Bitcoin is going to bring about. And this this is really about sound money, quite frankly. Uh, and, and that's why I started my Bitcoin story back in 0809, because even years before I had heard the word Bitcoin, I was a proponent of sound money because the Austrians have been talking about this for uh, years, it, some of them for decades, mm-hmm. about the importance of money in human society. And to someone who's hearing this for the first time, they might think, oh, this, this guy's exaggerating. He's you know being kind of dramatic. But if you think about what money is, it is a tool that coordinates and records all of human behavior. And if you mess with that tool, you are going to mess with all of human activity and behavior. Mm -hmm. So I actually don't think it's a stretch to say that money has these profound effects on every aspect of our society. And you start looking at what the current system, what what Bitcoiners would call the the fiat system and the incentives that uh, it, it, it brings about and the outcomes that that come from it versus what a sound money Bitcoin system would look like. And I think they're very, very different. And to to quote someone who is not a fan of Bitcoin whatsoever, but Charlie Munger has the famous quote, show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. Well, I would say, look at the incentives of the monetary system. And again, everyone is affected by money. You can't opt out of money uh, unless you're going to go live in a primitive hunter-gatherer tribe somewhere. Money affects you. Uh, there's the quote, you know, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. I, I forget who said that offhand, but you could kind of replace money into that. It's not a perfect comparison, but I think there's a lot of truth to it. You really can't opt out of money having an impact on you. Mm-hmm. And if you take a system that has kind of top-down control, or if not complete top-down control, at the very least, there's certain preferred entities that get to influence the monetary system and benefit from the monetary system, that's going to have wide ranging impacts throughout society. Uh, There are ethical issues with that, excuse me, and there are what I would call intellectual issues with that. And and when I say intellectual issues, I'm talking more about the economic, practical issues. I'm of the belief that 
money. Um, Like I said, it affects all parts of our society and having the opposite of sound money, which we could call fiat money, we could call it elastic money. It leads to economic distortions, economic miscalculations. That's the intellectual part, the practical part that I think has really bad consequences throughout society. And on the ethical side, the current, if you can create money out of thin air, and there's many different ways to do that, but if so, if someone has the ability to create money out of thin air, that's just another way of confiscating wealth. So that's why there are ethical concerns with certain preferred entities being able to create money out of thin air that the average person that you and I have to work for. So, you know, those are just some reasons why sound money uh, has huge implications throughout society. And that's why Bitcoiners actually are optimistic because we're looking at this system and we're saying, oh man, these incentives are messed up. There's certain people that benefit from the monetary system at the expense of others. Mm -hmm. How about we enact an honest and transparent system that it has much better incentives for people to produce and exchange in an honest, transparent way. And that's why we're so positive about the potential impacts of, of Bitcoin becoming more prevalent throughout society. That's great. I mean, you know, one of the things that I I'm seeing as well is this move towards open source and decentralization. And it's not just it's not just Bitcoin. Uh, it's what's being built on top of it on the Lightning Network, but also like you see like Noster, uh, which is a decentralized social media app. I mean, uh, we've grown up in a highly centralized social media landscape um, and where you can be canceled, you can be banned. I mean, I got famously booted off Twitter for doing an episode where I was asking if if there was uh, if the mrna shots were going to be safe i had a doctor on that had some concerns and without any warning whatsoever twitter said we we can't have you on here doing this kind of stuff you know and it's like really like i'm just asking questions um and i've always kind of hated facebook and i i, I kind of don't like them all actually <laughs> if i'm honest and and now here comes noster and i'm i'm new to noster uh, uh and I'm trying to figure out how to use it, but I'm super excited that it's a decentralized tool. Like I can't be, you know, I, I can grow it organically. I can find the people I want to find. I won't be shadow banned. I won't be inhibited from seeing your post, John. If I follow you and we're on the same relay, I can see what's going on with you. The, you know, there's no danger in Twitter, you know saying, well, don't, don't post John Har's, you know, tweets to Tony. We don't want those two guys, you know, collaborating on anything. Um, and I just got to think, you know, like the, the whole thing with the voting in the past election and the past couple elections, really, it's because it's centralized, you know, the, the software centralized. And I just started thinking, God, how many, you mentioned a whole bunch of fields and it's really exciting for me to envision god what will be built what will humanity build on a decentralized uh, uh platform in all of these things you know all there's all these gatekeepers in every industry and we all know it and we all see the corruption and we see the incentives for them to keep cheating uh they're getting fat so it's like you know i, I don't want to you know, I don't want to go to decentralize. I'm I'm making a lot, you know, Charles Munger, whatever. But I just think there's in every field, 
you know, you see big pharma in the health field and they're the centralized entity that's that's sort of calling the shots. And in a truly decentralized sharing of information, you would see a radically different healthcare system, radically different voting system, uh, food system. Um, and so and we're just you know, we're in the first inning of that. And so for me, I'm I'm so grateful to be alive at the start of this kind of paradigm shift that is favoring freedom, personal freedom and responsibility. It's favoring humanity. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are. I'm just, I'm just really excited right now. And I can't wait to see what all these creative people are going to build on top of the, uh, the Bitcoin first layer on top of, you know, with lightning and see where people are going to find, you know, applications that are just mind blowing and just stuff that we just get really excited about quickly. Um, I don't know how much you're plugged into that stuff, but, um, yeah, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Cause it's, it's not just Bitcoin, although that's the centerpiece for me, but it's this larger, uh, sort of open source decentralized movement that I see could really spread into every nook and cranny. For sure. For sure. There, yeah, a lot to unpack there. And one thing you made me think of that I, I would want to highlight for, listeners is a piece called the Bitcoin Reformation. And this is uh, written by a guy named Tur Demeester. And it's a great piece. It compares what's going on in Bitcoin now to the Protestant Reformation. And that was one of the biggest power shifts in the past, you know, 500 plus years was the kind of stranglehold that the Catholic Church had on, on Europe. Um, and, and by the, I'm not trying to bash the Catholic church. I am Catholic myself, but, yep. but just historically speaking, uh, the Catholic church had a real stranglehold over what, uh, people and, you know, business entities could and could not do. And, you know, so extreme amount of power over society, over individuals. And with the advent of the printing press, it became pretty apparent that there was a need for the separation of church and state. And I think one way to think about Bitcoin is that it's the separation of money and state. And because money and state have become intertwined over the past uh, several decades, governments have gained a tremendous amount of power over society and individuals by taking some sort of control over the monetary system. And I think we're living through the early stages. Like you said, it is the first inning of the beginning of this separation of money, of, uh, money and state. And to compare it to the separation of church and state, you know, what happened soon after the printing press came out and church and state were separated, we got the Renaissance and we got one of the most um, interesting, one of the most prosperous, innovative periods in human history. So there's a ton of potential here. Um, and that's why I'm so excited about this. I, I think we're going to see human potential basically be unleashed to a certain extent. And, and to be clear, I think this will also, there's another parallel to, to hit on here with the separation of church and state is that it was not just like, you know, the Catholic church rolled over and said, oh, we're done. Okay. You know, we're not going to control your lives anymore. Um, there were a lot of back and forth and they tried to hold on to power, but ultimately they didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. um, I do think this will be similar in that 
governments are going to not just relinquish control that they have over money. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs. Uh, I am of the belief that Bitcoin is going to win for a few different reasons. Um, one is just because it is a very thoughtfully designed technology. And an another key reason is that I, in order for a government to really shut down Bitcoin, they, they kind of have to go full authoritarian. Mm -hmm. So it's not too surprising that a country like China would do that. It, it would be, you know, it would take leaps and bounds more authoritarian behavior in the U.S., even though we've seen some of that in the past five years. But it sure. would take even leaps and bounds beyond uh, for the government to really just go after Bitcoin and say, not only are we going to say it's illegal, but we're actually going to do things to you know, punish people and, and try to stop the spread of it. So I am optimistic, although I think there will be plenty of battles Absolutely. Well, let, let's then, talk. Oh, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. I, no, I just no. wanted to hit on one point with the the centralization, decentralization, and, and Noster that you brought. Yeah, up. yeah, yeah. So, I think this is the the topic of centralization and decentralization is is a good one. I think there is nuance here because what I wouldn't want people to take away is that all forms of centralization are bad. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't think you or I or any Bitcoiners really saying that. Right. What Bitcoiners are generally against is when you have these massive entities that have a ton of centralized power. So whether it's a government, whether it's a bank, whether it is a social media platform, whether it's a pharmaceutical company, that's what we are leery about. Centralization in general is not, you know, it's not categorically a bad thing. If uh, I, I consider myself someone who's generally a supporter of limited government, but when I say that, I'm really talking about the federal government. You know, I'm not talking about all groups in life. You know, for example, if a if there's a dad and a mom who have kids, they're not going to say, "Hey, kids, you're on your own," because mommy and daddy are libertarians, and you know, you've got to make it out there in society. Right, right. Uh, centralization and you know, redistribution within small groups of people who know each other intimately. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's when you try to take that idea and apply it to these massive, powerful entities, like you said, Twitter just deciding, oh, Tony's off the platform today because he, he said something we don't like. Mm -hmm. That's what you need to be worried about. And if it's a bank that says, hey, this guy can no longer use his bank account because he did something we don't like. Or if it's the government saying, hey, this is a new law and you know it applies to you whether you like it or not. That's the, we want decentralization for those situations. Right. So I'm super positive with no sir. Uh, I think it fixes some of the issues that we've seen with social media. There's still a lot of network effects that it has to overcome. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to get people to switch, but I'm, I'm pretty positive on that over the long term. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure, get oriented on it. And I don't spend that much time trying to figure it out. Cause I got a lot of stuff going on, but I, I'm excited. And I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. I think it's something that I'll, I'll grow in appreciation of the more I use it and get oriented. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about central bank digital currencies. Um, there was a uh, Audrey Strobel wrote an article. Um, it was maybe six, six or eight months ago about, you know, sent a warning sign. It was published in Newsweek. And I thought, well, that's going to do the trick for normies. They're going to start to uh, – I don't know if anybody reads Newsweek anymore. But anyways, there's – you know, it's out there. 
Um, you see a lot of stuff in the Bitcoin forums around, you know, they're, they're watching it like a, like a hawk to see what will become of central bank digital currencies. I see recently, you know, the Fed now became live, although in a bunch of big banks, including Chase and Wells Fargo and some others, um, although I don't see any kind of changes, um, but they're, they've said, you know, Fed now is now we're, we're working with Fed now. And then I see that there was WorldCoin came out with something. This is, a, you know, not a central bank digital currency, but they're taking, you know, uh, it's almost acting like a digital ID. They're they're taking a scan of people's irises. Um, and so just to piggyback what you said about central control, this is uh, central bank digital currencies. Are they coming you know, are, are, are Bitcoiners and, and these futurists that are saying, hey, central bank digital currencies, because I've I've been in conversations, John, where people are like, I don't even know what that is. They do, And I'm like, whoa, like my my conversations that I'm having are so much different because everybody that I know that I'm talking with in my circles knows very well what central bank digital currencies and why they are not going to be good and how easily even my 16 year old son understands, dude, they could completely control what they want you to do. They could say, you know, if you're just going to go all digital and they can control what you, what you buy, what, you know, if they don't like what you're buying, they can shut, they could shut it down or, or diminish what you have. Um, but I still am around, some conversations where they're like, I, what is, I think I've heard of central bank. What is Why is that bad? You know? Um, and so I'm sort of seeing that there's a big group that e either doesn't know what they are, doesn't think they're actually going to be coming um, and doesn't see anything wrong with them. And so for me, since I am a libertarian and a pro-freedom person, and I'm in a lot of conversations about, you know, people looking, watching what's happening, um, you know, I guess my question is just kind of like, are, are you, are they coming? You know, will it be something that they roll out on a massive scale? Will it be, I mean, you have, you know, you have presidential candidates right now that are, that are that are drawing a line in the sand. I mean, Robert Kennedy Jr., you know, he's a a pro-Bitcoiner and against central bank digital currencies. You have governors, certain governors like DeSantis, who's saying, you know, no way in Florida will we will we have central bank digital currency. So you're already getting these politicians and these leaders kind of getting out in front of it. Um, what kind of conversations are you seeing about central bank digital currencies, both within your Bitcoin community, but also maybe more importantly, like what are the other people in your lives that don't don't have an ear to the Bitcoin signal? What are they saying? Are they concerned? Are they have they heard of it? I mean, I, I I was a little shocked recently to be around the dinner table and have somebody, a few people that were like, What what is that? I've never even heard of it. And I'm like, whoa, okay, wait, let's take this really back to, to the basics here. So yeah. Yeah. Um Sorry, I went uh, muted for a second. Can you hear me? I can hear you, brother. Great. Okay. Yeah, you outlined a lot. Of, I think you did a great job kind of playing both sides. There's reasons to be optimistic in terms of why a CBDC, central bank digital currency, might have some significant hurdles to being adopted and passed. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of reasons why 
you might say, I don't know, people are not really figuring out how dystopian and authoritarian this thing is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe they're going to sneak it in and, you know, look what happened to society and how many things people went along with without asking questions in the last three years. And is the CBDC going to be the same thing? Honestly, I could make arguments in both directions. And to your point about some people not even being aware of what it is, uh, just this was over the winter. So it was probably like six or seven months ago, went out to dinner with three good college friends of mine. They all work in traditional finance, some part of it. You know, they're sharp guys. I respect their intellect. Um, and then they have good, successful jobs. I mentioned the ter- I just said CBDC to them kind of in a joking way, something made it come up and none of them knew what it was, what I was mm. talking about. Wow. <laughs> so these are people who work in finance and they had no idea what a CBDC was. And I think when I said central bank digital currency, one of them was like, oh, okay, I think I know what that is. Like it was, you know, really just new to it. Wow. Okay. So that makes, you know, I guess that could go either way. It's that, you know, they don't know it. So maybe they don't have an opinion on it, but I would hope that people were more aware of it because it is so dystopian and authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have described CBDCs as a, a tyrant's dream. Mm-hmm. You know, just, just imagine what Stalin would have done with a CBDC, but, you know, at the click of a button, these people can spend, these people can't give these people money, take it from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just really crazy to, to think of the possibilities. Um, and uh, another example I could give you, former coworker of mine at Goldman, again, really sharp guy. We had like, you know, these various chats where people throw in news articles and interesting things. And I can remember one he sent in, uh, this was like probably 2020 when Bitcoin was like gaining steam. And he made some comment that if, if governments could get central bank digital currencies enacted quickly, then Bitcoin's not going to catch on because there's no use for Bitcoin. Mm. And I was just amazed. I was like, I, you know, I could see some person on the street being fooled by that way of thinking, but I, I didn't think someone successful at a Wall Street bank would be fooled by that way of thinking. Right. So just, just real quick to like outline two of the, the greatest benefits of Bitcoin is protection from currency debasement and protection from censorship or what we would call permissionless. Mm-hmm. Debasement means you can't create more of it. That's the fixed supply, 21 million cap. Uh, Censorship and permissionless means you don't have to rely on a government or a bank to grant access to you to be able to use your money. Those are two huge, huge benefits of Bitcoin that don't exist in the current monetary system. And they certainly would not exist in a CBDC. Right. So people need to realize that just because a CBDC has the word digital in it and Bitcoin is a digital monetary asset, you know, the, the, the word digital is basically where their similarities start and end. <laughs> right, right. After that, they're completely different things. So uh, I think people have a long way to go in terms of learning that. Uh, I'm pretty worried, to be honest, about governments trying to enact central bank digital currencies. Mm-hmm. There's another... Uh, Well, two things I would say on on the positive side and to kind of wrap this up in the U.S., I think we have a a slightly better than other countries um, sense of the fact that 
we don't want the government to have this kind of dystopian control over us. I know there's plenty of the population that doesn't seem to understand that, but there is a big contingent in the U.S. of, of people who are aware of that. So I take that as a positive. Yep. The other big hurdle to getting a CBDC enacted would be the banking system itself. So they don't really want to be disintermediated because if a CBDC works like a true CBDC would, you and I would have a wallet that's basically... Uh, a liability of the central bank. Mm-hmm. It, it's no longer Wells Fargo, you know, b- digital banknote in your it, checking account. It would cut out the middleman, which would be the bank, right? It would cut out the middleman. It disintermediates their business. Yep. You know, would would the Fed use them to maybe distribute wallets or something? Like, yeah, maybe, but you're still cutting out a huge part of their business and, and shrinking it. So mm-hmm. I don't think the banking system is going to go along with it too easily. Mm-hmm. So we're early in the stages of the CBDC. I don't think it's coming to the U.S. You know, anytime soon. It'll probably get rolled out in stages. Um, it's it's definitely something to follow. But yeah, yeah. there there's a lot to unpack with CBDCs. Well, and you know, I had uh, something an aha moment, one of many aha moments when it comes to Bitcoin. But recently, I was listening to Parker Lewis, a famous Bitcoiner on a podcast and he was kind of riffing on proof of work. And I had a, I had this moment where I realized, you know, I, the first few years of studying Bitcoin, you know, when you hear proof of work for the miners, you know, uh, as they're, as they're solving these algorithmic problems to tie up, you know, these, these blocks on the Bitcoin blockchain, you know, every 10 minutes, um and so it, proof of work always kind of existed with the miners and i and i was learning about how that was an important part of what bitcoin was for the miners um but i realized hearing him talk that he was kind of hinting that proof of work was a characteristic that was required of all bitcoiners and that includes me and you and that there what he was kind of pointing to was that there is a you have to take time to learn about bitcoin you you can't just understand it in uh in one podcast i don't know how many hours i've spent reading books uh reading uh articles uh you know sub stacks listening to podcasts it's got to be a hundred plus hours at this point um and i feel like i'm still just now getting to understand parts of the whole ecosystem that i didn't understand at the beginning i didn't have any clue about and what's also grown is my confidence in bitcoin and and participating i run a node now i bumble through it but i run a node because i feel like it will help me understand more about what's growing in the lightning network and so i'm i'm curious i want to participate as a human being in this new technology but it requires work and i just i i realized that proof of work is not just something on the miners it's for people you can't be super lazy and just say, oh, okay, yeah, Bitcoin's going to be important. Let me buy a bunch. It's just, it doesn't really work well that way because you're never really sure what you're doing. You're not confident at all. Um, uh, you know, it takes a while to learn that it's really not about price, you know, especially when when the fiat currency is being debased anyways. Um, but yeah, I guess I wanted to just share that with you that, and this was just, you know, there's a lot of learning in Bitcoin. I just learned this a couple of weeks ago and it really helped me kind of understand that 
you got to bring yourself to the conversation. You have to bring yourself to learning about it to really participate in this, this new paradigm shift. For sure. And I love this concept of, of extending the application of proof of work. Like you said, proof of work is a, you know, Bitcoin concept has a specific meaning as it relates to Bitcoin mining. You have to expend energy, uh, electricity, computing power in order to have a chance at winning the block reward and Bitcoin transaction fees as uh, volume is traded throughout the network. That's the specific Bitcoin meaning of proof of work. But um, you're absolutely right. There, there's a broader concept of proof of work that's becoming pretty popular in the Bitcoin community. And it's basically just this idea that, you know, nothing like there's no free lunch in terms of human achievements and human understanding, I, I think is another way to say this. Mm -hmm. um, athletes will absolutely understand this. If you are a basketball player and, you know, you go up one on one against somebody all your prior proof of work is going to be on display right there. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a baseball player and, you know, you are at shortstop and someone hits a ball to you, it, it's proof of work that decides whether or not you're actually going to field it and properly throw it to first base. Yep. Uh, you can't say, oh, you know, but my dad's the coach. Uh, so, you know, so uh, I get, you know. I get to have a good play because my dad's the coach or because I've been on the team for a long time. You don't get to flash credentials to say, uh, you know, I get a good outcome here. It, it's really proof of work. And on the Bitcoin knowledge side, you're absolutely right. No one is going to spend an hour hearing about Bitcoin and then saying, oh, good, I get it. You know, I, I totally grasp the significance and why I need to own some. It's just not going to happen. Um, there's plenty of resources that I could recommend to people to check out, but they're all going to take time to one, to go through them, but really time to, to sleep on it and just, you know, ponder it. And then even once you get comfortable with the fact that, okay, maybe I want to own some of this thing, then you have to do the work to say, you know, where should I do it? Uh, like you said, how should I custody it? It, it really is a rabbit hole. People mm -hmm. refer to Bitcoin as, as the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And it, it's really not just one rabbit hole. It's like sub rabbit holes. Um, I could just give you like a few of them. Once you start learning about Bitcoin, you then start learning about monetary history, economics, uh, privacy, human rights, mm. energy usage, computer science, cryptography, geopolitics and game theory it's like you you think you it's really like an iceberg you, you see the tip of it it's like you know someone mentioned bitcoin to you then you start looking into it and you're like oh my gosh there is a whole nother world um of things i need to look into related to bitcoin so yeah there's definitely some resources i could i could mention to people but i think anyone should be patient if they're getting into bitcoin for the first time because you'll soon realize that there's just a mountain of different areas to look into within Bitcoin. Well, and it can be overwhelming too. And, and, and so, some of the resources are for, you know, intermediate or advanced, you know, there's some stuff, uh, you know, I, I'm going to ask you at the end, maybe to recommend some stuff for the newbies that are just, you know, they, maybe they put in a few hours and they're getting curious, but now they, they need to, get uh you know they need to get up to speed a little bit what would be a, a good thing but first i wanted to talk about swan i know you work at swan bitcoin 
And I love I love this company. Uh, it is a Bitcoin only company. It's you guys are early, one of the first ones, really, and one of the big ones. And I just whenever I get people that are brand new and they want to start to acquire Bitcoin, I point them to Swan because I I just have a lot of confidence in that your intentions are are true. I like that it's that it's Bitcoin only, so you're not getting all the shit coins, all the altcoins that you get at some place like Coinbase, which a lot of people used at the beginning when they were first figuring things out. You know, Coinbase or Gemini or Kraken, but I think Gem uh, uh, Swan is just there's great resources. I see that you you really put educating, sharing sharing information with your new clients so that they get up to speed. Um, and I just, I just really love it. And then Corey Clipson, one of the founders, he's from my neck of the woods. He's from, you know, Seattle and, and uh, uh, yeah, right here. I mean, he, he grew up in R Richmond beach, which is really close to where I live. So, um, but I just, I just really believe in what you guys are doing and I want to give you a chance to just talk about what you're up to at Swan and then we'll get a few resources before we check out. Yeah, so at Swan, we would say we are a Bitcoin-only financial services company. And our view is that that is going to become a more common thing and something that people will grasp the importance of that in the coming years. It's going to be like, oh, yeah, of course I want to work with a Bitcoin-only financial services company. We think more people will come to that realization in, in the coming years. And we really want to be a one-stop shop for people. Um so that they can get really everything that they would need as it relates to Bitcoin. So the obvious ones would be being able to convert US dollars into Bitcoin. Uh, we, of course, offer that. That's kind of our bread and butter. But beyond that, we will have different options for custody for people. You can keep it in third-party custody with our custodian partner when you are ready to take self-custody and we can guide you on that journey, by the way, we're always encouraging people to take self-custody. Um, when you are ready to do that, you can uh, withdraw the Bitcoin to your single SIG self-custody. We are also going to have an offering launching very soon called Swan Vault, which is a multi-SIG collaborative custody offering. I won't get into a ton of detail about how that works, but the great thing about this is that it allows for some sort of fault tolerance. The best analogy to use here is think if there's three keyholes on a door to a house and you need any two keys at the same time to get into the house. So what's good about this is you could actually lose one of the keys. Technically, you would never try to do that, of course. But if you did lose a key, you're still okay because two of the keys gets you into the house. Yep. So this is something that gets people a little more comfortable with taking self-custody. Um, we likely will have Bitcoin-backed loans in the future. This is for people who have bought some Bitcoin. It's appreciated uh, to a significant degree. And then they say, you know what? I want to access a little bit of liquidity, but I don't want to sell my Bitcoin because I'm still long-term very bullish. Mm -hmm. We'll be able to help out those clients. Uh, we're likely going to do withdrawals to a Lightning wallet within the Swan app, um, which is kind of cool for the people who are looking to support the Bitcoin circular economy. You know, maybe you have a local place in your city that does accept Bitcoin and Lightning, and you want to just send a little signal to them. It's like, hey, you know, I think it's cool that you guys accept Bitcoin and Lightning, and you know, I'll pay using uh, using Lightning here to just to buy a beer or whatever food, whatever it is. Sure. So. 
that's kind of the idea is that we're going to you know, be this Bitcoin only financial services company. And like you said, because we're Bitcoin only, that allows us to focus on education and having one-on-one conversations with people and really giving our clients signal as opposed to some of these, what I would call the mass automation exchanges, which they kind of have notoriously bad uh, customer service. And then they're usually trying to guide people into, you know, buy this new token that just launched, which mm. quite frankly, we think there's really no merit to these other tokens. They're usually some form of a scam or a pump and dump or a flawed design. Uh, so that's, you know, one of the reasons why we're, we're Bitcoin only. But yeah, that's kind of swan in a nutshell. It's it's refreshing to go to your website and see how all signal in the communication without all the noise. You know, it's just really refreshing. Um, John, what if, if we had mentioned some resources? Where, where would you point people for a couple? You know, maybe a couple websites or maybe a, a podcast or something where people, if they started to roll up their sleeves and hey, you know, I heard John and Tony talk about how many hours they've spent studying this, and I I want to start logging some hours. Where where would you point a newbie besides Swan? There's some great great content on Swan, but if you were going to go outside of Swan to point some people and get them up to speed, where would you do? Where would you point them? For sure. And and I will say on the Swan site, um, just real quick, if you go on there, you likely will get a pop-up about a book called Inventing Bitcoin by our founder and CTO, Jan Pritzker. I do feel the need to shout that one out just because I think it's it's a really good one. And uh, I believe we're still giving it away for free in PDF. But outside of Swan, yeah, I think there's a few things that come to mind. There's a podcast episode that I've shared with other people that just played really well. Robert Breedlove with Preston Pish on the, uh, it's called the Investors Podcast. Mm-hmm. It is Preston Pish's podcast. Robert Breedlove was a guest. It was in the second half of 2020. And I believe it was called Bitcoin Common Misconceptions. Mm-hmm. But I think Breedlove did a great job kind of laying out, you know, what is money? Because you really have to hit on that question before someone even understands the significance of Bitcoin. Right. And I think Breedlove did a really good job there. Um, another video audio resource would be, uh, it's, I think it's called Bitcoin Masterclass, where Michael Saylor interviews Ross Stevens. And I think the two of them are really good communicators about uh, Bitcoin and why it's important. And then a written resource, uh, two written resources that I would mention. One is from Fidelity. Uh, yes, that is the fidelity that manages trillions in assets. They've written a research piece called Bitcoin First, and it does a really good job outlining why Bitcoin is important, why you should care about it as a monetary asset. And they also touch on why these other crypto tokens really are not that much to be interested in, at least in terms of a monetary asset that's going to have long-term staying power. So that's a good one. And then the last one is an article by a guy named Vijay Boyapati, and it's called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And I would just recommend that one to anyone who's new. There's there's some really good information in that article as well. That's great. Thanks, John. John, thanks so much for coming on Basecamp. I really appreciate you taking time and sharing your insight and your wisdom. And please come back again. Let's do it again at some point as Bitcoin continues to evolve and unfold. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks, Tony. Great to be here, man. Love chatting with you and I appreciate the time. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with John Haar over at Swan. I know I learned a lot by talking with him. And go start learning about Bitcoin. And if you're ready to start stacking sats, go set up an account at Swan Bitcoin. They have everything you need. Thank you, Base Campers, and we'll see you around the fire next week. If you find value in our show and wish to show us some love, we are now making that very easy to do. You simply go to www.basecampformen.com and click on Donate Support Basecamp. You'll find an easy way to make either monthly donations for as little as $5 a month, or you can donate just once. We love the monthly donation and hope to build this up over the coming months, but any show of support is greatly appreciated, honestly. Thank you for your support and for helping to keep Basecamp as a resource on your hero's journey. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac, and you're listening to Basecamp for Men.